Thank you, Pastor. Good morning, everyone. Happy New Year to you. My name is Greg Paris. So glad you're here. And if you've joined us online today, welcome to you. I know many of you are sharing with us uh, from various places around the community and other parts of the country. We have a number of our prisoners who are in Florida right now, uh, maybe tuning in. If you're in Florida right now tuning in, we're thinking about you. Is that enough? <laughs> just wanted to fantasize about Florida there for just a moment. It's encouraging. Hey, I want to share some good news about the Christmas offering. You know, we set a goal of $120,000. We've exceeded the goal. Uh, it's $160,000 and growing. Yay, yay, yay for that. That is fantastic. Some of you may be uh, listening right now and you say, well, how did they get to $160,000? I didn't give anything. Well, give something to the Christmas offering. That would, you can be part of the fun. And that would be fantastic. Uh, just a reminder that we will start the story in three weeks on January the 30th. Uh, we are hearing stories from many of our prisoners who have purchased these books and are distributing them all over the country. My, my wife, for example, has been mailing them to family and friends all over the place. And we'll ask people to tune in online to receive the teaching there. The story, for those of you... Uh, uh, who may be new to this, is a, is a paraphrase written by Randy Frazee and Max Lucado that offers the biblical narrative over the course of about 30 weeks uh, in chronological order. So, the, so we will start in the Old Testament with Genesis chapter 1 on January 30 and start working our way through the Old Testament in chronological order, these, these high points and, and various points along the way right uh, to June, and then we'll take a couple of months off, and then we'll pick it back up uh, after Labor Day and go through the New Testament. And so this year, we are focusing on the story, the biblical narrative that uh, will enlighten our lives. So we want to understand the Bible better, and I know it's a great blessing, and you're looking forward to that. So that's in just a few weeks. Today, I want to do a, just a, a simple little sermon on the subject of stewardship, there are three conversions in a Christian's life, typically. There's the conversion of the mind. You hear the gospel, you hear the story of Jesus, you begin to consider it, you think about it, you work through it. And at some point, it makes sense to you. And, and you, wanna, you wanna take the next step. That leads to the next conversion, which is the conversion of the heart. And this is when folks initiate a meaningful relationship with God, a personal, intimate relationship with God through Jesus Christ, and it's a conversion of the heart. A third conversion that sometimes occurs in a Christian's life, uh, and I would encourage you to consider that this should be a regular conversion in every Christian's life, but it's the conversion of the purse. Your mind, your heart, and your purse. These are three aspects of our lives, apparently, that are very vitally important because Jesus had a lot to say about all of these. And so today I want to talk about a special offering that the Apostle Paul was securing with the church at Corinth, and we can learn some basic lessons about giving and what it means to be a joyful giver. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to 2 Corinthians. I'm going to read the first seven verses from chapter 8. Verses 6 and 7 from chapter 9, of course, we'll project the words on the screen. Our custom is to stand to hear God's word, so thanks for doing that as you're able. 
This is the Apostle Paul. He's talking to the church at Corinth. And he says, now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, they, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. So we urged Titus just as he had earlier made a beginning to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. Since you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge, in complete earnestness and in the love we have kindled in you, See that you also excel in this grace of giving. Now, verse 6 of chapter 9. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Everyone say cheerful giver cheerful giver. Amen. May God bless you. You may be seated. Thanks so much. Now, this is Paul's second letter to the church at Corinth. You should know that Corinth was a large, dynamic, wealthy, charismatic church, very dynamic. I mean, these folks had come to faith and they, they were already a very dynamic culture. And boy, they were they were pushing the boundaries. They were living on the margins of appropriate Christian behavior. And so Paul writes his first letter to the church at Corinth to discipline them and to correct them and say, you know, you can't do that. Or that's okay, but not like that. And so, and so there's a lot of correction and discipline there. The second letter from which we've just led, read the second Corinthians, this is more of a calming effect to affirm the church at Corinth and to exhort them to greater acts of love. Now we started with our with with this text in verse one of chapter eight, and Paul's reminding them of the grace of God in the church at Macedonia. Now here's the here's the context. The church in Macedonia was a small church, small town church, and they were an impoverished church. So they were depressed. And yet at the same time, they're small and they're depressed, but they're generous. And Paul reminds the church at Corinth that the Macedonians have taken up an offering and the, and the common cause was to help the brothers and sisters back in Jerusalem because there was a famine in that particular region. And so Paul wanted to give them some help, some assistance. And so he reminds the church at Corinth that the Macedonians have been a model, an example of what it looks like, even though you don't have a lot to give and you're, and you're modest in size, you can still be generous. And not only were they generous with their giving, but they were generous with themselves. Paul says they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us. And they pleaded with us, please let us be part of this offering. Don't, don't exclude us because we don't have, because we're poor and we don't have a lot. And so Paul is saying to the church at Corinth, hey, take notice of these guys. And by the way, when I get there, 
I'm expecting you over these past months to be raising money for the church in Jerusalem. And when I get there, we'll take a special offering at that time. And I'll probably have a couple of these guys from the Macedonian church in tow with me. So you want to be ready to be generous. Otherwise, you'll be embarrassed by these Macedonians who've already demonstrated what it looks like to be generous, even when they have limited means. And so that's, that's the context of this story. And, and there are some very easy points to be made and, and principles to be learned from this particular passage that I want to get to this morning. As I say, it's very straightforward and simple. Let me tell you a little bit about my background. I grew up in a very small town in west central Indiana. My hometown had less than 1,000 people in it. I attended a little Methodist church in my hometown. And my my church growing up was not a particularly dynamic church. And so everything about it was modest and, and somewhat dull, may we say. We did not, therefore, emphasize or acknowledge or celebrate the value of giving. I mean, it was just not a subject that came up. And so the pastor didn't talk about it. The, the congregation didn't expect to hear from it. I mean, it's like it was just like an off-limits subject. You know, it's a, it's a touchy subject, isn't it? It's an emotional subject for us. And so most people have trouble going there. And especially when you're in the context of the church, it's so easy to, to question motives and, and, and why the church is trying to raise money and that sort of thing. It's easy for folks to get cynical, and people are very cynical these days about such things. All of that said, you're looking at a guy who has no problem, not only no problem talking about this, this is one of my favorite subjects. I love teaching on this subject. Next week, I'm going to talk about abundant giving, and then the third week, I'm going to talk about how to live under an open heaven, and I know a little bit about that, and it's just a great blessing to to exercise this part of your spiritual life and to to live in the benefits of that, and so this subject excites me. Apparently, it was an important one to Jesus because he spent more time talking about money and, and giving and stewardship than he did just about any other subject as we have it recorded in the Gospels. He talked about the kingdom of God more. Stewardship is second on the list of preponderance of evidence in the Gospels from the teachings of Jesus. That's got to mean something. Don't you agree? And so, and so it's, a, it's an important subject and one that I like to talk about. Now, when I was growing up, I didn't learn any of these principles. I remember when I was just a little boy, my dad would give me a quarter to put in the offering. And you say, oh, isn't that nice? Isn't that cute? Isn't, you know, that's a good thing to instruct your children. Let me tell you, without instruction, it left me confused. Now, I'm old enough that a quarter is a lot of money back in my day. You know how often I had a quarter in my hand when I was five, six, seven years old? Never. Rarely, never, hardly ever. And my dad would put a quarter in my hand and wait for the offering. So here comes this offering plate in the life of our church, and I'm supposed to put the quarter in. God, it was, it was horrible. It was painful. And I'm, it's like I'm on the horns of, di- of dilemma. 
I'm having a moral crisis <laughs> to put a quarter in the offering plate. And listen, that attitude can carry over. My, my whole attitude about giving was purely carnal. You know, I'm thinking, what could I do with that quarter? Because <laughs> I never have a quarter. What could I buy with that quarter? How much fun could I have with that quarter? And so it was hard for me. Now, my church, growing up, we always talked about, I remember this, talking about the loose change offering. Now, remember, this is part of the announcement for the offering. Now, remember, all of the loose change collected in the bottom of the offering, that goes to missions every year. So this is how our church handled missions. What, what, the quarters and dimes and nickels that collected in the bottom of the collection plate were all gathered up, and over the course of the year, we might raise as much as $250 or $300 for missions that year. It was pathetic. <laughs> so you understand that I didn't have a good foundation for all of this. What happened to me when I was 16 years old is I made a decision to follow Jesus, and when I met Jesus, I had a conversion of the mind, and I had a conversion of the heart when I was 16, and something began to happen to me, and it became clear to me that what God had done for me in the work of Jesus Christ, sending his only son into the world, motivated by love and compassion for people like me, that he would give his life and then rise from the dead on the third day so that I could be reclaimed and redeemed by God and have a hopeful life and a, and a hopeful eternity, I, can, I just have to tell you that that energized me. That filled me with gratitude. It occurred to me that I should be thankful every moment of every day of my life for what God has done for me. And as a result of that, I just think everybody ought to know who Jesus is. Everybody in the world should have a chance to meet Jesus because I know what Jesus can do in your life. He can transform everything and take meaningless and make it purposeful. He can, he can take wondering and lost and give it, give it destiny and significance. This knowing Jesus is everything. And so I was so grateful for that. I'm just, the way my brain works, I'm just pragmatic enough to, to take the next step, which is, well, look, if it's going to take resources and sacrifice and the, the, the praying and the giving and the going to take Jesus to people who don't know him, and that's going to cost money, then we ought to start giving. If that's what it takes, and that's what we should do. And, and so giving for me became an expression of gratitude, appreciation, and thanksgiving for what God had done for me. Let alone this idea that God's concerned about every area of our lives, including money and the needs that we have materially. And so those were the foundations in my life that God used to help me get perspective on why it's important to be a given, giver, to be an open-handed, open-hearted person. Because just out of sheer gratitude for what God has done for us, we should be generous and liberal. Amen. That's where an amen goes in the sermon, I hope. But God is concerned about everything in our life. Beth and I were married the first year. We'd saved $2,500. And it's a good thing because before we got married, because you know, it's a big nest egg. And it was a good thing because Beth, we got pregnant the first year we were married. Beth got too sick to work. 
uh, it's a long story. Let me summarize. The day we got married, Beth weighed a certain amount. And within the first year of our marriage, we gave birth to our first son. And the day she delivered our son, the day she delivered the baby, she was the same weight as the day we got married. So she was so sick that she lost her own body weight at the same pace that she was adding body weight with a baby. That girl suffered. So she couldn't work. And so we were just hand to mouth. You know, we stopped driving the car. We were just eating as little as possible. She wasn't eating much at all, so that actually helped. <laughs> You're not hungry, are you? Good. Can't, can't afford more bologna anyway. One day, one day I went to the cupboard. I got home. She was in bed. I went to the cupboard. We only had two things left in the cupboard. We had a can of pork and beans and a half a box of spaghetti. And I thought, you know, the colors are right. And so I cooked up the spaghetti, warmed up the beans, poured the beans on top of the spaghetti. Now, just as a word of caution, don't ever eat those two things in combination. I'm sure there are dietitians or medical personnel who could explain it more carefully. But apparently, when you take a bite of that combination, it actually expands uh, while you're chewing it and then swallowing it. And it even expands after that. And so you don't, no, it's not. <laughs> Let's put it this way. I've never eaten those two things in combination since then. We got to a place where, where rent was due and also a payment to the grad school was due. And I didn't have any, I didn't, I didn't have it, you know, and so we just said, Lord, help us, and the, the day before, the day before those bills were due, we needed $650 to pay those two bills, and the day before those bills were due, a check came in the mail to us from a distant relative who had no really comprehension of our need, and you want to guess what the amount was? $650. These are little signposts along the way that God cares. God cares about us. God cares about meeting our needs. God wants us to live an abundant life and to be whole people. One day I was teaching a little Bible study. This was many years ago out in the Cornfield Church, and we had about 40 people on a Sunday night. And there was a young couple sitting around in the front pew, and their names were Mike and Marcia Smarsh. They were both grad students at Ball State, living in Scheidler Apartments. They had a couple of little babies. And every time I kind of turned to that side of the room and I noticed them, I just had this impression that they had a financial need. I just couldn't shake it. And I, you know, I would teach a little bit longer and lean that way, and that same impression kept hitting me. And I, you know, you can multitask like. Sometimes when I'm in my third or fourth sermon on a Sunday morning, I'm thinking about what's for lunch, uh, who, the, who the Colts are playing. It's fascinating what you can do. And so I, so I, was, I kept getting this impression that these, this young couple had a financial need, and I just I couldn't shake it. And so I'm rationalizing this. I'm teaching the Bible study and then rationalizing this. I said, well, listen, God, every, probably everybody in the room has a financial need. What's so special about them? And heck, I have a financial need. I was making, I don't know, $13,000 a year at the time. 
Let's let that soak in for a second. And, and, and so here we were. I got to the end of the Bible study and I couldn't resist. I said, I, I'm sorry, please forgive me if I'm completely off base and hope this isn't embarrassing. But I just get the sense that you folks have a financial need. And, and Roxanne immediately burst into tears. Just, I mean, tears literally popped out of her eyes and began to fall down her face. And Mike uh, composed for a moment, and then he, then he told us the story. We, we both work part-time jobs. We're, we're between paychecks right now. The last week has been rough. Rent is at Scheidler Apartments is due tomorrow. We don't have money for rent. Um, Roxanne and I haven't been eating. We haven't eaten the last three days. We've, we fed the babies. Um, so... We're not sure how we're going to manage. Well, so I just said, well, we'll just take an offering. So we had 40 people there, and we got an offering together. I turned to Beth. I said, how much money do we have? And she got in her purse, you know, and pulled out the checkbook. This is back in the day. And she looked at me, and, she, and we had just been paid and paid all of our bills. And so what we had left in the checking account was how much we had for the next two weeks to live on, uh, you know, to buy food and gas and whatever you need. And she said, we have $53, $53. And I looked at her and I, and I said, let's, let's just give them all of it. She said, okay. She was in full agreement. So we gave, gave them everything we had. And the offering was about $750. Their rent was $250, something like that back in the day. So it was a great blessing. Isn't that good? Isn't that fun? Now, that's just a little story just to remind us that God cares about us. One year on a Thursday, the Thursday before Easter, I got a call from my pastor in, in my church where I grew up. You know, small little church. He was, you know, just a modest guy with a family and, um, you know, doing the best he can. And, and so now all these years later... And he calls me and, and tells, tells me this story. My wife's health has been in crisis this year, pastoring this little church in another town. And, and my, my estimated taxes are due. It was April, just before Easter. And, and he said, my, my taxes are due this week and <laughs> next week. And I said, well, how much do you owe on your taxes? He said, $4,300. Well, you know, I had 50 bucks. Maybe on a good day, cash flow, surplus cash. So he's, he said, you know, I was praying about this, and I just thought I heard God tell me to ask you for help. Why do people do that? It's an interesting thing. Well, I didn't know if God had told him or not. So I, I said, well, I, I, let me think about this, pray about this. I'll, I'll get back with you. So hung up the phone. I turned to Beth, and I was irritated by it. Why would, you know, this is my pastor. Why is he calling me? And he's got this pitiful story, and I don't know. I don't have $4,300, and you know, I went on this rant. <laughs> what am I supposed to do about it? And, and Beth, very calmly, which is her style, it's very annoying. <laughs> Maybe you need to talk to God about it. Maybe God did tell him to call you. Oh, yeah, fat chance, whatever. And 
So I, you know, I broached the subject with God. Now, God, I know you, there's, you have nothing to do with this, and I'm sorry to bother you this close to Easter, but <laughs> my old time pastor has a need. Maybe you can help him out. Amen. <laughs> well, I, I just couldn't get away with it. So he says, gnawed at me, gnawed at me. And so I said, okay, what do you really want me to do? And Jesus said, I had him call you. I said, well, that's fine. So what do you want me to do about it? I don't have $4,300. And it never crossed my mind because, you know, two days later, it's Easter. It's Easter Sunday. I know you don't appreciate this. But I thought I heard God say, why don't you ask your church to help? I said, it's Easter get up on Easter with some kind of lame story like this? Ask people to help out your old pastor? Come on, it's Easter. Have any idea how much trust equity goes out of your account with your church? You stand up and do something stupid like that? It's insane. Jesus just, you know, this is what I thought I heard God say. God speaks to me kind of like I speak to myself. I don't know how you hear God, but this Usually God speaks to me, Who does he, whose voice does he sound like? Well, he sounds like mine. That's another teaching. But, but, the, but I thought I heard God say, you know, well, listen, all right, you can just go get a personal loan, I guess. Pay it off like a car. If you don't want to do what I ask. Dang it. So on Sunday morning, Easter Sunday, I... I have not done this before or since, so don't relax. It's not likely to happen again. Please. And I'm that guy that always does what Jesus tells me to do. I, I don't know. I got up and, I, and I, spent, I spent the first 10 minutes of the first Easter service, I mean, just packed out house. You know, it's Easter. It's like Christmas. It's Easter. And so I'm, 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 I put my hat in my hand, and I started apologizing. So before I even tell you what's going on, I'm sorry. I was just, and I got about 30 seconds into this speech, this, this, this qualifier, and one of the older gentlemen, he's in heaven now in our church, he's, he's near the back of the room, he's just going like this. He's an old Pentecostal guy. He's got his hand up. And he was annoying. I'm trying to qualify this whole mess. And he's trying, trying to get my attention. Well, he's got my attention. I'm just ignoring him. I, so I finally finished my speech. And then I, then I just step right in it. You know, it's like a big, hot, stinky pile of poo. And I just, there it is. Now I have to go stand in it. So I just stepped right in it. And now we're going to take an offering for my pitiful old pastor whose tax bill is due. Unbelievable. Yeah, Bob, what do you want? <laughs> Bob stands to his feet just very erect like this. He's in a very clear voice. Everyone could hear him. He said, as you began to describe your former pastor's need, God impressed me that I'm supposed to give the first $500. And he just sat down. And something happened. There is such a thing as a spirit of generosity. 
There's, a, there's the touch of God that comes upon people and churches and suddenly there's, there's liberty and there's favor and there's joy and there's cheerfulness in it. And by the way, that spirit rests on our church all the time. It's here all the time. It's here all the time. I've got 40 years of observation now and what I've observed is that there are people who are in our church because of that. Because they, they have discovered what it means to live under an open heaven and so they live their lives with their hands open and they're so generous with the assets and resources that God gives them of time and talent and gifts and money and those sorts of things and they, they just live in the, they live in the river. They, they, they've learned how to live under an open heaven. And, that, and it's one of the reasons they hang around because they know the blessing of God. The blessing of God is like that is on me. And so it gets on us. And, and, and there are people here and have been here for a long time. Most people here um, live under that. There are people who can't stay here in the church because it's too uncomfortable because they haven't had a conversion of the pocket, of the purse. And so they can't stay because it's, it's convicting to be in a place where the blessing flows like that and you're not part of it. And so you have to go somewhere else where it's not flowing. It's less provocative, less challenging, and less blessed. Well, I did the same thing in two... Easter services that morning, we raised uh, almost $13,000. I called up my friend on Monday morning. I said, he said, and he was so worried. He said, oh, pastor, he said, I've been, Greg, he said, I've been worried so much. He said, I've been praying all weekend. Uh, Thank you so much for trying to help me. Can you tell me what happened? I said, well, I think we've done okay. I'm going to send you a check today for Twelve thousand plus dollars, and he cried, just like Roxanne Smarsh cried, because he got in touch with this truth that all of us should be aware of: that God cares about you. God cares about you, and He wants your life to be blessed. Three quick things, if you're following the outline. When Christians give, good gets done. Any questions? When Christians give, good gets done. And it's a joy to see good get done. Buildings are built, churches are planted, programs are established, relief is offered to the oppressed, children are fed, orphanages are built, pregnancy care centers are established. Recovery homes are established. The gospel is preached. Cultures are penetrated. God is honored. Is this complicated? This is back to my original part of my story that motivates me to be a generous person. Because good gets done. The gospel gets preached. Jesus gets lifted up. And that transforms people's lives. Anyone who comes in contact with the hope found in Jesus Christ is a transforming presence. And it takes resources to disseminate this glorious good news. So good gets done. 
I mean, I just announced today that our Christmas offering was is in its it's in excess of one hundred and sixty thousand dollars. That means we've got more money now than we need to build the house, the whole house this year. It's amazing. Good gets done, I say. Good gets done, and it's a wonderful thing. By the way, we live in a culture now that impugns Christianity and Christian values. We're post-modern, post-Christian, post-truth, post-absolutes. We live in this world now where lots of people point fingers at Christian people and Christian culture and Christian worldview and values and are so quick to be cynical and to question our motives and, and quick to doubt our intentions. You know, you Christians are nothing but a bunch of do-gooders. Well, you know, the Bible says that Jesus went about doing good. So I can't think of a nicer thing to say, even if you say it with a cynical tone, than you Christians are nothing but a bunch of do-gooders, because that's what we do. When, when we give and when we offer our lives, good gets done, and people's lives are affected by it, and when Jesus is exalted, it changes, changes the world. So good gets done. We should be happy about that. 2 Corinthians 8, 6, look at it on the screen with me. This is a summary statement from the Apostle Paul. He said, to bring also to completion this act of grace. And he's talking about that offering for the church in Jerusalem, to bring to completion this act of grace. So the question is, what grace? The grace of giving. Grace of giving. Because when Christians give, good gets done. Second, when Christians give, God gets glory. God gets glory. 2 Corinthians 9, 13, Paul said, men will praise God for your generosity. You know, the world understands worship. The world gets worship. I mean, just watch uh, an NFL game this afternoon, uh, thousands of people gathered, and you'll see worship. You go to a music concert, pop singer, you'll see worship. Uh, Political rallies these days, same kind of phenomenon, you'll see worship. Human beings understand worship. Human beings actually understand good deeds. Because you've got a lot of people in the world, you know, God bless them, they do good things, good deeds. They, they volunteer, they help, they minister to the poor. It's all good. And so the world understands good deeds. Here's what the world cannot get their mind around. They can't get their mind around tithing. Tithing is such an odd concept for a person who doesn't have a Christian worldview or kingdom-mindedness. Tithing is such a bizarre concept, and it just it drives people nuts. But it's pretty straightforward. God is the owner of everything. We are the managers of whatever he puts in our, in our possession. God is the owner. We are the stewards. God is the owner of everything, and we steward whatever he gives us. He asks of us, out of all the stuff he allows us to have momentarily in this life, he asks for a tithe. It's like, it's 10%. And so it's one-tenth. That's it. And, fo- and folks, folks have, a, they have like, a, like a seizure over the thought of it. It's fascinating to me. So they can't get their minds around that. 
So back in the days when we used to pass the offering buckets around, you know, here's this, here's this bucket that comes by. And that, you know, that provides a little social pressure. Now it's, it's uh, online. I mean, you pick up your phone or you're sitting at your computer and you're going to make a donation and you get to the amount line and, you, and that's when you start sweating. Hey, what, what is my... That's a, a tithe. Oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> Only about 3% of Christian people in America actually tithe. <laughs> 3%. Oh, thank God I'm in the majority. No, it's not a good thing. It's not a good thing. I wouldn't be caught dead not tithing. This is part of that open heaven thing. Malachi said it this way. Bring, bring your tithe into the storehouse and see if God will not open up the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing upon you that you can't contain. That's where I want to live. Thank you very much. You might think I'm odd. You may think I'm strange. And so what happens in churches, what happens, they pass a collection and here comes the offering plate and, not, and it puts people in a moral dilemma. And, you know, begrudgingly pulling out two bucks out of a wallet and putting it in just with hand trembling. They can't get their mind around it. And, 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 and so, so someone may be tuning in online and listening to a, to a sermon like this, and they go, what is going on with that guy? He's lost touch with reality. People aren't going to give 10% of their income to the church or anybody else. Things are, things are tough out there right now. We're not, we can't afford that. He's crazy. And, but he hears me tell these stories, and they go, what is going on with those people in that church? How does a church in Delaware County collect $160,000 for a Christmas offering? How does that even happen? You do understand that the casual observer would be shocked by that in Delaware County. And so someone sitting at home listening to this online may be getting up going because it's a little uncomfortable, getting up and walking into the kitchen, you know, and the rest of the family is still listening and gets to the kitchen and messing around in there and, and decides he wants to heat up his coffee a little bit longer so he doesn't have to go back in there and listen to it. And, and, and then finally he just blurts out, why would a person do that? Why would a person commit that kind of stewardship? And then maybe his wife, who gets it, or maybe is just learning, she turns to him and says, maybe it's because God is real to them. That this whole thing is reality to them. This isn't just all speculation and shooting in the dark and hoping it all turns out. But this is a worldview born of conviction of people who have actually encountered at a personal, intimate level a relationship with Jesus Christ that has not only transformed the way they see the world, but the way they practice their faith. Maybe God is real to them. 
And that's what motivates them. And that's what does it. I wonder what it is in their lives that's missing in other lives. Maybe my own. My prayer is that when a man or woman in our community thinks about Union Chapel, they will not think of an eloquent preacher or a dedicated staff or nice facilities or significant programs or marvelous people. Although if they thought those things, they would be discerning, perceptive. But rather, my prayer is that when people think about Union Chapel in our community, they will think we are generous, compassionate, open-hearted, open-handed, loving, gracious, and caring about the real needs of real people. Many of you know that Afghani refugees are being resettled across America right now. Six or 700,000 of them. Over 100 Afghan refugees are being settled here in Delaware County. Maybe you didn't know that. There's an organization, a primary organization, kind of a point group led by local Muslims who are facilitating that resettlement here in our area. We've had conversations with this group. We ask, what are the ways we can help? And there are a number of ways that we can help, and one way is that we can contribute money. So you should know Union Chapel has given $10,000 in the last two weeks to a Muslim organization local here to help Afghani refugees get settled, to have their basic needs met for a while. Because that's what you do. That's, that's, how, that's how we roll. We help real people with real needs. And we give tens of thousands of dollars away every year. Otherwise, for average citizens in our community who need rent payment, or a utility payment, on and on it goes. So when Christians give, good gets done. And second of all, God gets glory. That's a big deal too. Men will praise God for your generosity. Did I mention God gets glory? I've already touched that. I've already said that. I've already done that. I don't know where I am in the... This is only the second time through too. That's a bad sign right there. I can't remember... I turned 67 yesterday. This may be a sign. I don't know. I don't know. I figure it's just a number. So maybe I've already preached that page. I don't know where I am. Completely lost. Ha! Last point. Good gets done, God gets glory, and here's the third idea. When Christians give, they get free. In 2 Corinthians 8, Paul is speaking to the church at Corinth, and he's acknowledging their desire to give. He's acknowledging their will to give. Now he says, write the check. Go online and transfer the money. What is it that God wants from us? What is it that God wants for us? You ever thought of that? God wants for us blessing, contentment, happiness, holiness, prosperity, abundance, peace, satisfying relationships, families, careers, and enriched spiritual life, fruitful ministries. 
And perhaps above all of that, he wants us to be free. Free. Free in the world. Do you appreciate how hard it is to get free in the world? Do you appreciate how easy it is to get stuck? To get bound? To get constricted in the world? And we get stuck like that. Every one of us. Every day. Someone says something. Something happens. There's a miscue. Just hardly anything at all. And now your day is ruined. Life turn, gets turned on its head. Sometimes it's a big thing. And, and now you're totally disoriented. You're in crisis. You, you understand how hard it is to be free. I mean, really free in your mind and your heart in this life. But this is God's design for us. I heard the story of a young couple who felt the call of God to go to the mission field, to go to the continent of Africa. And they had waited 13 years in their lives to have their first child. They prayed and prayed. And finally, God gave them the miracle blessing of a child and then a second child. And so they had these two young children and God was now calling them, they thought, to the mission of Africa. But they hesitated. And the reason they hesitated is because their children were so precious to them. They were a miracle from God. They didn't expect to ever be able to have children. And now here they are. And because they were so precious to them, they hesitated to answer the call of God to the mission field because they feared for their children. What if something happened to them? What if, what if they got injured? What if they died? We couldn't, we couldn't live with ourselves. And so they were reluctant to answer the call of God to their lives because of that. And they went to their pastor and told him their dilemma. And he wisely said to them, before God, listen now, don't let your blessings become curses. Anything God gives to you, he can be trusted with. Hear the wisdom of God. Anybody God entrusts to you or anything God entrusts to you, entrust them, entrust it back to him. Hear the wisdom of God, friends. Hear the wisdom of God. Hear the wisdom of God. And so what I've learned over the years is that if God can, if God can get it through you, he'll give it to you. If he can get it through you, he'll give it to you. Anything I clutch to my breast, though, and cry, mine has the capacity to rule my life. Any, anything that I will hold, a person, an item, material item, a relationship, a ministry, anything in life that God gives you, if you hold it like this and say, this is mine, all mine, it will grip you. The Bible describes it as the power of mammon. It's corrupting. It's, it's, it's like falling into a tar pit. and you, you can't pull yourself out. You're stuck. And it will hold you there. But if you want to be free, you have to open your hands and open your heart with whatever it is God has given you and offer it back to him. Because whatever he's given you, you can always trust him with it. That's so good. I hope you can hear that. So ultimately, God doesn't want your money or your stuff. or He doesn't, he doesn't want that stuff. What he wants is your affection. 
He wants your heart. He wants your life. And when you give yourself fully and wholly and totally to him, then and only then will you be free. When Christians give, good gets done. When Christians give, God gets glory. And when Christians give, they get free. Did you get it? Let's pause and pray. Thank you today, Lord, for your word. So helpful, so instructive, so beautiful. So we, we, we gratefully receive your word offered to us today. And now we pray for the application that you would help us to be people open-hearted, open-handed, and free. That's our prayer, Lord. That's our prayer. Give us courage. Give us faith. Give us hope. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, would you stand with us?